This is a Pentecost Sunday, a, a day that the church sets aside to uh, remember the, uh, the giving of the Holy Spirit to the church back in that first century, uh, following the death and resurrection of Jesus, to know that God's presence is with us. And so even as we gather today, know that we are the people united in and through the work of the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit with us. It's also Memorial Day weekend, and I have a Memorial Day confession to make. For the whole of my life, I have approached Memorial Day as simply the unofficial beginning of the summer. And it's a day more about grilling hot dogs and hamburgers than anything else. But we know that there's actually a purpose to a Memorial Day, that in our country it's a day set aside to honor and mourn the U.S. military personnel who died serving in the United States Armed Forces. In fact, we can go back and trace the history of such a day. It began soon after the Civil War and you can imagine how some of that was messy given the deep divisions that uh, existed in our country at that time. It was first known as Decoration Day, and it was celebrated on May 30th, and it began to be adopted by states throughout the nation. And uh, in 1970, that was the final day that it was celebrated on the 30th. There had been an act of Congress a few years before that that would move it, along with some other holidays, to be attached to a weekend so that the last Monday in May became the official day in which we would honor and mourn those U.S. military personnel. You know, one other thing to mention that is probably something you already know, probably obvious, is that we're not the only country which celebrates a Memorial Day. That different countries throughout the world, in fact, you can look that up yourself and find what day it is celebrated on and what they call it and the purpose that they set that day aside for. Yeah, I bring that up because we gather in this room not just as uh, people who are citizens of this nation, but we gather mostly, most importantly, as Christians. And we have brothers and sisters all over this globe. And in fact, we have more in common with Christians in other countries than we do with people in this country that don't follow Christ. And so I was thinking, what is it that a church is to say on a Memorial Day Sunday? In my research, I came across a sermon that was preached by Dietrich Bonhoeffer back in 1932. And if you know something of history at that time, that this is only 14 years after the end of World War I, and everything I've read and everything I've seen on the First World War was that it was horrific. That it, the, the death and the suffering and the way people suffered and the way people died was just indescribable, horrible. And in Germany, where Bonhoeffer was, that not only was there the war itself, but there was this ongoing famine that had wreaked havoc among the population. 
And so Bonhoeffer was standing before Germans in 1932 giving a sermon about their Memorial Day. His text for that day was Matthew 24, verses 3 through 14, and that's going to be our text as well this morning. So if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open those up. Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 through 14. We'll also put it here on the screen. And if you're participating at home, uh, please, we encourage you, make sure you have your Bible with you as well. Let us hear the Word of God, Matthew 24, 3 through 14. As Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. May God bless the reading of his word and may God show his favor upon us as we come under his word today. In Bonhoeffer's message, he describes three different spaces for the experience of a Memorial Day. He describes the space of family, that on a Memorial Day, that a family who has lost a loved one is a very special uh, sphere all by itself, that a family would remember the love that was shared, that they would experience a, a deep grieving of the loss, that that encounter is very intimate and personal. Bonhoeffer described a second sphere, a second space as being the state, that the civil authorities would call the nation together or the community together, and, and they would want to recognize and commemorate the sacrifices that were made on behalf of the community. They would express the gratitude of a nation, even as they might pursue a national agenda with the people. And then he described his third space, a different sphere. He talked about the church. He said that the church must have something special to say. Would we grieve with the families? Absolutely. Would we be present in, in national commemorations? Yes. We might also have something special to say to a national agenda, but for sure we would be there and be present and 
represent the love of Christ to those who are gathered. But when Bonhoeffer described what the church would have to say, this is what he said, and we'll put the quote up on the screen. He said, The church is like the seer of ancient times, who when all are gathered to commemorate a great deed of the nation, is wholeheartedly present but suffers because he sees something that the others do not see and must speak of what he sees, although no one wants to hear it. And so today we're going to take a look at our role as seers. And by this term, we do not mean interpreters of signs, not readers of tea leaves, not admirers of motions of the stars, but ones who have seen, ones who are witnesses. We're going to break our conversation into two parts. We're first going to look at seeing something, and then we'll look at saying something. Seeing something and then saying something. So let's first take a look at seeing something. When I was in high school, my family went on this great little vacation. My stepdad worked for FMC, and FMC was a company that made military vehicles. That was their, their main uh, thing that they uh, produced. In fact, once a year we would have uh, proving day or in the proving grounds, and so we would go and it'd be an open house and we'd get to ride in arm, armored personnel carriers and that kind of stuff. And, but they also ventured into the work of producing motorhomes, an FMC motorhome, just this giant motorhome on wheels. And um, Well, my stepdad won use of the prototype for a week, and we went on a trip up to Oregon. It was wonderful. On the way back, we stopped, stopped in Yachtville in Napa Valley in California, and we pulled into a strip mall, and as we pulled into the strip mall and we're finding our parking place, there was this white van that was screeching out, and there were people that were running toward it. They had clearly just robbed a store, and this was their getaway vehicle. And someone in the motorhome, I don't remember who it was, but yelled, get down. And everybody, all of our family in the motorhome, got down on the floor, and I think I must have been the one who just delayed a little bit longer to watch a little bit more. Because it turned out that I saw something that the rest of them didn't see. I saw that the person inside the van was helping those who were trying to get into the van. That person was helping them in, was taking the goods, was helping them jump into this moving van. I saw something that the others did not see. We didn't read this part of the Scripture, but in the verses leading up to verse 3, so at the very beginning of Matthew chapter 24, there's this experience. Je Jesus in 20, chapter 23 had, had been in the temple, and He had said these things to the people in the temple. He said, Woe to you, you scribes and Pharisees. Woe to you, you Pharisees and scribes. And He called them out on the way that they were leading the people of God astray. And you can read it for yourself, that one woe after another, as Jesus took them to task. And then he turns his back on the temple, he leaves the temple, and in the top of uh, Matthew chapter 24, the disciples were told, well, they're pointing out the buildings to Jesus. And Jesus says to them, 
And here I'll use the NIV. It respects the order of words in the original language better. He says, do you see all these things? There's a good argument to be made that this word, the verb, see, that it's not just do you see it with your eyes, but do you see, do you perceive, do you discern, do you understand all these things? They were impressed by the buildings around them. They were giving their attention to something that Jesus is going to tell them is doomed. And he asks them, do you understand these things? It would be as if someone had come to me in that motorhome after I had had that experience of seeing these, these, uh, uh, these folks who had robbed a store and getting into a van. If they had asked me, do you understand what you saw? You didn't just see people get in a van. Do you understand? Do you perceive? Do you discern the godlessness in the culture? This, this act of violence against others, this, this sense of greed, the brokenness of humanity. Do you see? Do you discern? And so Jesus goes on to tell them. He goes on to tell them what they will see and hear in this world. He says, you will see, you will hear of uh, posers, people posing to be Christ, to claim, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. He said, you will see and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, of nation rising against nation, of kingdom against kingdom. You're going to see and hear of famines and earthquakes. And he says, these are but the beginnings of birth pains. And then Jesus tells them, after giving this list, do not be alarmed. How can Jesus say that? Hey, listen, here's your future. Here's what's going to happen. There's going to come time. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars and famines and earthquakes and people pretending to be me. But do not be alarmed. You know, in... um, uh, in the marriage that Vicky and I have together, that there has been this ongoing dialogue uh, about how we uh, exist in a vehicle together. And uh, I, of course, I am the worst passenger, by far the worst passenger. But there are times when Vicky's the passenger. In fact, early on in our relationship, uh, Vicky had a way of letting me know that there might be something in and amongst the traffic that I do not see. Uh, She would communicate such a thing with great alarm, uh, such that that noises would come out of her that I'm not sure how to describe them, and, and there would be a panic in her voice. Over the years, as we've communicated with each other, she has understood that uh, given who I am, that that may not be the most helpful way of communicating that data. And so now she uh, very nicely says, uh, there is a car coming to our left, and it's very helpful. And, and there is a way of saying, do not be alarmed, but pay attention. Do not be alarmed, but t- pay attention. You need to know this information. In Bonhoeffer's sermon, as he describes the, the realities given 
that the German people to whom he has, is speaking with had just gone through World War I and had experienced famines. He was talking to a people that had been given to despair, many who had stepped away from the church, in fact, the church suffering the loss of many. And in his sermon, he brings attention to the cross. And he mentions how the cross can be very much an experience of despair. Can you imagine those first century followers of Jesus who stood with him as he was being crucified on the cross? And the despair they would have felt as Jesus, their Savior, the the Messiah, the one that they had followed, died. But Bonhoeffer points out that the cross is connected to the resurrection, that Jesus goes through the cross and then is raised. Jesus had to experience the cross on our behalf. God chose, Christ chose to die for us that he would then be raised from the dead. And so then Bonhoeffer goes off, and here we'll quote him. He said, exactly there where everyone begins to doubt God, where everyone falls into despair about God's power, there God is fully. There Christ is alive and near. Where it hangs by a thread, whether one will desert the cause or remain faithful, there God is. There Christ is fully. What an appropriate statement for a Pentecost Sunday. God has given His Spirit to us that we would not be left as orphans. That even Jesus at the very end of Matthew's Gospel will proclaim, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so, we can ask the question, what is it that we have seen? We have seen Jesus. The church has seen Jesus. Listen to these incredible declarations from Scripture. This is from the Gospel of John, the first chapter, verses 14 and 18. And the Word became flesh. The second person of the Trinity became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. Romans 5.8 What have we seen? But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 14, verses 6 and 7, and then verse 9. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know know him and have seen him. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And then finally, from Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. For in Christ, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell and through him to reconcile to himself all things, 
whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. What have we seen? What have Christians seen? What does the church see that the world has not? We have seen Christ for who He is. It is true that we will also see what others see. We will see wars. We will see famines. We will see earthquakes. We will see false Christs. And we will see, as the text tells us, we will see and experience persecution and hatred directed at us, at the church. We will see our brothers and sisters in Christ, we will see love growing cold. There's that part of our passage we read this morning, verses 9 through 12. It goes like this. It says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my namesake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. If you're asking in your head, you're probably not alone. If you're asking these questions, how can a good God allow such suffering? Why doesn't God step in and stop this wickedness? What good is it to follow a God who allows me and, and others to experience so much discord and pain. And so what have we seen? It's Bonhoeffer's point. It's Christ's point. What we have seen is the goodness of God. In the midst of all the hurt, in the midst of all the wickedness and sorrow and pain, we have seen the goodness of God. We see it throughout the Old Testament. In the midst of all of the brokenness and hurt and pain and wars of the Old Testament, we still see the goodness of God at work reaching out to a broken world. In fact, there's this verse in Psalm 100, Psalm 100 verse 5, that, that is my go-to whenever I experience in my limited experience of pain and suffering that the Lord is good. That the Lord is good, that His steadfast love endures forever, His faithfulness to all generations. And not only is His goodness in the Old Testament, we see it most clearly in the New Testament, that in and through the giving of Jesus Christ, His Son, we have seen God's goodness, God coming toward people. Here's what we see. Here's what we perceive, what we understand. We understand, the church understands the goodness of God in Christ who is our peace. If that's what we see, here's what we are to say. See something, say something. You know, in that story about Yauntville, it turns out that what I saw and no one else saw became important in uh, the work of the law enforcement folks. 
In fact, I had two detectives show up at my house in San Jose, and they took a deposition from me. For you see, the person inside the van was saying that she was there against her will. In my ability to say, wait, that's not what I saw. I need to let you know what I saw. I could help clarify their case for them. I saw something. I was called to say something, to give witness. In Christ, we, and as the church, we are called to say something with our lives. In verse 13, it reads, But the one who endures to the end will be saved. It's a great description of our lives, that, that we live our life out as a proclamation of God's goodness. We become a living testimony to the goodness of God. I have had people serve as a living testimony for me of God's goodness, even in the midst of suffering. I'm guessing you have as well. Some of the ones that stand out for me, and, and these I know through their writing and through a, a bigger-than-life story, though I've had folks that are, are, are just more known uh, personally as well, but these are some of those uh, wonderful stories. Uh, Corey Tenboom, this Dutch watchmaker who during the Holocaust, she and her family, uh, uh, they welcomed Jews into their home, and they had made a, a, a closet, a, a hidden space in her room for people to hide out in. She ended up being arrested. Someone turned her in, and, and she, with her sister and others, they were arrested. And uh, Her sister did not survive the experience, but before her sister died, Betsy said to Corey, she, she said, there is no pit so deep that he, God, is not deeper still. Corey went on to the concentration to a, a concentration camp and was released by some clerical error. And after the war, she, she continued her ministry to, to people in need, especially people who, with disabilities. And, and she wrote her story in the hiding place and, and as a living testimony to the goodness of God. There's the story of Helen Rosevere. I've mentioned her in this room before. I was at an Urbana conference where she was speaking, and, and she's a, 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 she was a British person and who went to the Congo to be able to help with their health system and their health care. She was promoting well-being for people in the country. In 1964, during the rebel uprising, uh, Mrs. Ms. Ro Rosevere was uh, captured, and she was so horribly mistreated. Think of the vilest of things that could be done. She eventually was released, and she went back to England for a little bit and then returned to the Congo in order to help encourage and bring more of that health care to more and more people. She was a living testimony in the midst of suffering to the goodness of God. Jim and Elizabeth Elliot the story that's told in Through Gates of Splendor. This, we don't have time to go into all this story, but a wonderful testimony of going in this world. It happened to be the, the uh, indigenous people of Ecuador and, and being a witness for Christ there, even at the cost of Jim's life. Listen, listen to this verse, this last verse in our text. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. 
those three stories, those testimonies to all nations. You know, there are just so many other small stories, small maybe in the world's eyes, but big in the the way that God works of bringing His goodness to one neighbor at a time. We know that in our text, Jesus simply declares that this will happen. We know at the end of the gospel that Jesus says, you know, it's, it's not just the declaration, it's a call upon your lives to go and to be the voice for God. He says, now go and make disciples of all nations and baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and teach them to obey everything I have commanded and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. When it comes to saying something, here's what Bonhoeffer had to say to the Germans. He says, what does faithfulness of the church community of Christ mean here other than calling out into this furious rage? Calling out into this furious raging again and again unto exhaustion, unto humiliation, unto martyrdom. The words of Christ that there should be peace that there should be love, that there should be blessing, and that He is our peace, and that God is a God of peace. He goes on to say, beyond that one quote, he goes on to say, and the more they rage, the more we, the church, should call out. And the more we call out, the more wildly they will rage. For wherever the word of Christ is truly spoken, the world senses that it is either ruinous madness or ruinous truth, which endangers its very life. Where peace is really spoken, war must rage twice as hard for its senses that it's about to be driven out. Christ intends to be its death. In other words, Bonhoeffer simply agrees with Christ. The Lord we share together with him as the one who has victory over war, over death, over suffering. In this world, we will have persecution. The world will hate us because it hated him too. Yet we are not victims. This is not a woe's me story. We have seen because God has quickened our hearts. We have perceived because Christ has shown himself to be the Son of God. We know because the Spirit brings to our hearts the knowledge of Christ. And since we have seen, perceived, and discerned, we are not just seers, but we are also called to be speakers. And so on this Memorial Day and all future Memorial Days, with families who have lost We will grieve and weep and we will mourn with them. With nations whose sons and daughters died in service, sacrificing their lives in the defense of the well-being of others, we will acknowledge and recognize the sufferings. And as followers of Christ, our love for God and our love for others in the name of Christ compels us to go farther We are the church of Christ. For we have seen, we have understood, and because we have seen, 
we must say something. We have seen the goodness of God manifested in Jesus Christ. We have witnessed God in the flesh, dying for our sins, making peace. We have heard and received the promise of His return, the ultimate victory over death and suffering and wars and famines and earthquakes. And so let us not remain quiet. The church must speak. You and I must speak. We sang at the beginning of the service, we sang, I'll stand, that our soul, Lord, to you we surrender, that all I am is yours. There is no need to be alarmed. Instead, let our response to his call simply be, here am I, send me. Let's pray together. Father, we do indeed thank you that you are the good God. We proclaim you as the good God. And we thank you that you have allowed us to see you, to see you in the death and resurrection of Christ, to see you in Christ himself, to receive your spirit into our community, into our very selves, that we become the temple of the Spirit. We have seen by your grace. And so, God, may we then, too, proclaim your goodness to a hurting world. Even this week, God, give us eyes to see, a mind to perceive those moments when speaking up is called for, and we would speak up about you to those around us. To you be the glory, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.